Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And I'm sure that you all recognize the other gentleman on the screen. This is the amazing Dr. John Lundwell back yet again. How are you, John? Doing great. Hi, guys. It's great to be back on your show. Oh, we are so excited, especially since you just had a little foray onto Mormonism Live. And we thought maybe now you would not come back on our show. We're so happy to see you here. Oh, God, this is no, this is Homeland right here. <laughs> oh, I love that. It's true. We just, you know, we feel like your family. We've that was gone a through great this journey. Show, yeah. Yeah. RFM yep. and Bill are, 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 are pretty sharp. So that, that was a good show. Nope, they're good. And I would encourage all our viewers, if you have not had a chance to check out Dr. John Lundwell on Mormonism Live, uh, just go Google that. It'll pop right up. He shared information in a different way and with, you know, different hosts. So like you said, Bill and RFM, and they had a lot to add to the conversation. It was really interesting. We loved it. So please go check that out. But in the meantime, here we are with Dr. John again, and we are still working through all of his points. We are now on point number four. So we will just let John take it away from here and talk about what he is going to discuss with us tonight. All right. Uh, point four, the Book of Mormon characters are fabricating and can be falsified. I'm going to approach this uh, topic uh, through the back door by uh, actually beginning with a correction from our last episode. Um, if you recall, we talked about textual density, the size and dimension of the plates. And uh, I quoted the one article. So I was I did almost all my work 2015, 2016, when I was going through the Book of Mormon with orality and literacy in mind. So during my Google searches, this is the only article that came up by Jan Sodal. And, and the error that I made is I referred to Mr. Sodal as female, Jan Sodal <laughs> as, as uh, a woman. Because I knew a Jan spelled in that way. And uh, so I, I I was looking at the apologetic and not at the author. However, had I just spent two seconds looking at the date, 1923, what female scholar was the church publishing in 1923? In Swedish, Sodal is, uh, uh, in Swedish, the name Jan is male. And in Norwegian, the name Jan is female. So, um, so there you go. That's... Uh, I, I misgendered Jan, and I want to uh, uh, correct that on the record. I'm sure she appreciates that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a terrible faux pas. Um, then I got several uh, comments and uh, several comments in the comment section of your uh, podcast, as well as a few messages. Um, one person pointed out a paper that I was not aware of by Bruce Dale that went over all this information. It was published in 2017, which, uh, you know, when I when I did your podcast, I pulled all my notes out and, and that was before 2017. So I've actually been furiously Googling and, and getting up to date. Uh, but in, in 2017, in the interpreter, a... Uh, a professor named Bruce Dale, PhD in chemical engineering, wrote a paper on uh, basically textual density. And his approach was uh, he looked at the entire Quran written on a, a, a surface at about 80 square feet. And he, then he calculated how much uh, square footage would it take to get all the Book of Mormon character, uh, text. Um, but he largely drew from the work of Jerry Grover, who 
also commented in the comments section. Um, and Grover wrote a piece, Ziff, Magic Goggles, and Golden Plates. Uh, so look, here's, here's uh, the argument Grover's making, and that is the thickness of the plates is um, immaterial. What you want to know is, is the, uh, the hardness of the plate. If you can make a, a uh, very hard surface, then you can make a very thin plate. And Grover assesses that you could have uh, between 300 and 600 plates in a six-inch stack of, of Book of Mormon plates. I find this uh, incredible. Uh, to me, th this is a uh, uh, Tumbaga rice paper plates, TRPP. <laughs> that, that's an incredible technology uh, to, to be able to make uh, 300 to 600 uh, plates. So, but that's their argument. Uh, and again, this takes us right back to what I had said before. If you do the math long enough, and if you play with the materials long enough, sure enough, you can get this to work. But that's not how, oh, I, so <laughs> once again, I'm, there's I'm always a track small. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, you know, look, even if uh, you had, um, 300 plates in your six inch plate stack and a third uh, only a third is you know two thirds are sealed so that's 100 plates that's still over 40 words per square inch and if you remember our uh, ancient examples were one to six words per square inch and uh, so you still this still is not getting you where you want to be but Again, if you write the character small enough and if you make uh, you know, Tumbaga rice paper plates. <laughs> and doing that all with uh, a stylus made of bone or what, uh, you know, what uh, what are they using to get that small? I know one of our uh, viewers actually put in uh, and showed what that density would look like using a matrix printer. And, you know, he had to go okay. down to such a small uh, <laughs> pitch that, you know, human hand can't <laughs> can't write that small. I'm sure they had a matrix printer. And the other thing I was thinking I didn't mention last time is that a lot of these things were written on the run, right? They were on a battlefield. They were in a mountain. They were in a cave. I mean, it wasn't, there weren't pristine conditions to be writing. It seems like you would need just the most perfect environment to be able to create create this it's such a small small text with, with no mistakes because every time with you no make mistakes. a mistake you've got to you got to add work you got to cross it out because you can't erase and 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 write next to it which means it's going to increase a certain percentage for mistakes uh, the plausibility of this is less than one percent so i again we've already talked about that it's um so implausible and here's the thing the claim is extraordinary and you need extraordinary evidence. And, um, you know, these uh, three to 600 plates, one millimeter or less uh, tall characters, I mean, doshes and dats that you are inscribing on the run. I, th that's not extraordinary evidence. If you're going to argue that they could make, uh, you know, a quarter of a millimeter thick Tumbaga plate with text written on both sides, you have to produce that. You have to produce it. If you don't produce it, then 
I'm sorry, your argument is, uh, it, well, it's not academic. Now, look, I'm not, you know, as I corrected myself, I, I'm not a linguist. I, I took a, a year of biblical Greek and a year of biblical Hebrew. That's my, uh, uh, you know, that's my ancient language uh, uh, knowledge base. <laughs> I, I study comparative culture, comparative anthropology, uh, oral tradition, that's that's what I'm strong in. Uh, and and the, the point I'm making is it's futile as this uh, slide. It's futile to determine the exact dimensions of Noah's Ark and the physics and requirements necessary to put two of every animal on it for 40 days. People do this. People do this. And sure enough, they've worked it out. We you could build a ship and you could put two animals on it and you could feed them for 40 days. <laughs> I mean, actually, you can't, <laughs> but but people do this. Uh, and and uh, the, the problem, of course, is the entire story is is not history. Uh, this comes from a different epistemology that we talked about in the first two episodes. This story is cosmic fact, not historic fact. And so just doing this, you're, you're running down the wrong road. And this is exactly what's happening in trying to determine uh, you know, how can we get all this text to fit on, on the plates? You can't. And so you've got to be able to produce it in its ancient context. And you're not going to because no one's writing in an alphabetic script in the historical uh, historicism that the book requires. No one's writing that in pre-Columbian America. So you're not going to produce it. So. But again, just before I leave this point, I wanted to reemphasize the Book of Mormon itself shows us that this whole process of trying to get 335,000 words to fit on these plates is deeply problematic. And we went over this last time with the Book of Ether. Now, if you remember, Ether gives us a plate count. Right. We don't have to argue or wonder how thick or thin the plates are. If you could get one, two hundred, three hundred plates in this stack of plates, the book of Ether tells us that the brother of Jared and his descendants recorded the entire history of the world on 24 gold plates. What was on those plates? The creation, the age of the patriarchs, the age of the Tower of Babel the entire history of the brother of Jared, the entire history of all the Jaredites living all the way down until they were destroyed and met the Nephites. It recorded the days of the Nephites. It recorded the days of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. It recorded all the generations to the uh, millennium and all the prophecies. <laughs> it recorded the entire history of the world on 24 plates. And these are portable plates. They're carrying them around. So they're not like, 100 foot plates right there there um again at the end of the book uh moroni makes an editorial comment and says i can't even record 100 of what's on these plates in my own account well the book of ether is 17,000 words so the, the the gold plates of ether have to be at least 1.7 million words on 24 plates that's 71,000 words per plate if they're the same size, that's 888 words per square inch. If you double the size, that's still 444 words per square. I'm sorry. 
you're not going to get this to work. You're not going to get this to work. And this is right out of the Book of Mormon. So we are dealing with a completely different set of assumptions than we are bringing to it, that all the apologists are bringing to it, trying to get this to work with textual density and how big and how little the text, how big and how thin the plates. We're dealing with a completely different mindset that is implicit in the ideas of how ancient texts were recorded. And I thought I'd just talk about that uh, it, to let your viewers kind of see where this kind of thought process is coming from. So Joseph Smith's worldview, where did Joseph Smith derive his conceptions of ancient writing, gold plates, and textual density? Why would he think that 24 gold plates in the case of the record of ether could contain the entire history of the world or that two inches of stack plates could contain the entire text of the Book of Mormon? It's his worldview that we're encountering in in all of these ideas, and they're, and they're not associated with ancient writing systems, ancient languages. It's something entirely different. All right. So in pursuing that question, I thought, well, look, I've, I've looked at the anthropology, the archaeology, and the epistemology of orality and literacy in pre-Columbian America. That's our first two episodes. I've looked at textual density and the description of the plates. That's episode three. Is there anything I, I can learn by finding the characters that were recorded on the plates? Who Do we have those? Who recorded them? Did Joseph Smith ever record them? What can we learn about the writing system? Uh, so that's where we're going to enter tonight. But we're going to enter tonight by... Um, talking about the assumptions behind the writing system uh, that you quickly discover Joseph Smith had. So here I have um, uh, a, a citation from Joseph Smith history out of the Pearl Great Price, uh, chapter one, verse 62. Uh, Landon, do you want to read that text block? Sure. By this timely aid was I enabled to reach the place of my destination in Pennsylvania. And immediately after my arrival there, I commenced copying the characters off the plates. I copied a considerable number of them, and by means of the Urim and Thummim, I translated some of them, which I did between the time I arrived at the house of my wife's father in the month of December and the February following. All right. So Joseph Smith is just reciting that he, he moves uh, to Pennsylvania after a timely aid, which is uh, some money that Martin Harris gave him to help him move. And once he got there, he set up shop to translate the plates with Martin Harris as a scribe, but he copies several of the characters off the plates. And he gives a portion of this to Martin Harris, who in turn goes and visits a man named Charles Anthon from Columbia University, who is one of the leading classic scholars in the country at the time. And he shows them the characters, right? We all know this story. It's taught in gospel doctrine. And the version we get in gospel doctrine is out of Joseph Smith history. Well, this at least tells us that um, we're going to talk about that version, uh, that there were characters copied down, uh, that Joseph Smith copied down. He gave them to Martin Harris. And we do have a document called the characters document 
that for a long time was assumed this was what Martin Harris showed Charles Anton, but it turns out uh, it's not. This is uh, a document. It was purchased by the Community of Christ. It's a handwritten slip of paper uh, that was purchased from the heirs of David Whitmer, uh, thought to be in the Anton transcript. Um, however, handwriting analysis suggests the character's document was written after 1829 by David Whitmer's brother, at first John Whitmer, but now Dan Vogel has said it's probably Christian Whitmer. Um, and therefore, if it's written after 1829, Martin Harris shows the characters to Charles Anton in 1828. So this is written after uh, Harris shows Anton the characters. Uh, the symbols on the document were published twice in 1844 after Smith's death, uh, and this scrap of paper with its symbols was sent to three Egyptologists in uh, 1956, Alan Gardnier, William Hayes, John Wilson. And all of them replied uh, that, more or less, these are not Egyptian characters. Uh, Wilson is the most uh, emphatic, quote, this is not Egyptian writing as known to the Egyptologist. It obviously is not hieroglyphic, nor the cursive hieroglyphic, as we get in the Book of the Dead. It's not Coptic, which took over Greek. It's not hieratic, abnormal hieratic, or demotic. Uh, Wilson added, it does not conform to the normal pattern of cursive, end quote. So he just demolishes it and says this has nothing to do uh, with Egyptian. You know, it's supposed to be Reformed Egyptian. We don't know what reformed Egyptian is, uh, but uh, presumably it's related to some sort of Egyptian script. <laughs> and uh, be an origin. <laughs> yes, and that'd be Egypt like having a reformed church that has nothing to do with Christianity. Uh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> well, so um, so you know, this is uh, this is a conundrum for the church. And again, this is 1956 when the, uh, they send it to Egyptologists who, who then rebuff it. Um, John, can I make a, a, you bet. a point here? Uh, it's actually a point that one of our uh, comment, commenters in, uh, on our uh, Mormonish page uh, had written. But they stated, you know, these are all like handwritten or hand copied. And they, they pointed out that all Joseph had to do is take a piece of paper with some charcoal and he could do a charcoal rub and we'd have completely a copy of what the characters look like uh, right, from the, right from the book. Uh, yet something that simple was never done. You, you know, it's shocking that we don't have, someone should have just drawn the plates. Someone should have just counted the leaves, right? Uh, someone, I mean, we, we could have a very, it would take three minutes <laughs> to just get a very simple yet detailed description of what we're dealing with. And yes, a rubbing, a, ru a rubbing of the characters. Uh, but we get none of that. We have no plates and we have uh, just general descriptions of people remembering it from underneath a cloth. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, well, you need actual plates in order to do all those things you described. So take that for what it is. You would need actual physical plates in order to do that. Well, uh, they had plates. There was a stack of plates. Um, and they moved the plates around, though, again, very often Joseph Smith would translate without the plates in the room. Right. <laughs> That's what I mean. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, this all of this is so problematic. And again, this is an extraordinary claim. You got to have extraordinary evidence. And so far, it's it's really mind boggling. Not only do we not have extraordinary evidence, we don't have mundane evidence. We have actually no evidence except how how does it make you feel? Um, you know, we're going to talk about that in our next episode. All right. Uh, just uh, as I'm looking through all the um, characters that could have been copied down, we have that Whitmer. Uh, called the character's document uh, slip uh, with symbols on it. And then we have uh, two uh, two writings. Can you see my mouse on your yep. screen? Yeah, it's very small, but we can see it. Yep. Okay. So uh, we have, <clears throat> this is in Oliver Cowdery's handwriting. It's written about 1835, 1836. We don't, he doesn't say these uh, come from, the gold plates, but we have it copied in Frederick G. Williams' handwriting shortly thereafter, about 1836. And uh, Frederick Williams says these were symbols found on the Book of Mormon. So he's indicating these are symbols on the gold plates. What's interesting about them is they match Oliver Cowdery and symbols, Frederick yeah. Williams, but we have a translation. Right. The other document, we have no translation. It's just a list of characters. We'll go over them. But here we have a symbol, two symbols with a translation above it. These symbols mean the Book of Mormon. Over here on the right, we have two symbols. And these symbols mean the interpreters of languages. Right. Same translation, same symbols on each uh, piece of paper uh, by Oliver Cowdery and Frederick Williams. So now we have two symbols with a translation. Well, without going any further, I now know, I'm, if we're going to take this seriously, I now know we're probably dealing with a logosyllabic writing system, not an alphabetic writing system, right? Because one symbol represents an entire word, right? It's not a syllable. It's not a, a phoneme. It's not a sound, ah, ba, ka right? That's an alphabet. One symbol represents an entire word. So that is a logosyllabic writing system, which tells me I'm going to have numerous symbols in the writing system, you know, between 100 and thousands, right? This is Egyptian, yeah. Akkadian, right? Uh, Babylonian, Mayan. These are all logosyllabic systems. So, okay, at least I get, uh, I get that from this. But... <laughs> When I first look at this, there's a huge problem with these symbols. In fact, when I first saw it, I was like, surely I'm not the only person who's looked at this and realized these symbols can't be. Um, and we'll talk about that near the end of the presentation. Why? That's a real problem. Well, here is uh, the Frederick Williams passage where it's uh, 
writing in his journal and there's the symbols and there's his interpretation. But right next to it, he has a whole list of symbols that presumably are from the Book of Mormon. And uh, they're right here, uh, recorded sometime around March 27th, 1836. Uh, the majority of the content of the Cowdery document is identical material in the Williams document, suggesting that one was copied from the other, that both were copied from the same source text. So uh, these symbols over here are really interesting. I, I really couldn't find any commentary on it. So again, maybe your viewers are going to regale me with all kinds of uh, links and I look forward to it. I hope so. Oh, yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> because I couldn't find much on it. What I could say, however, is here on the left is the uh, what uh, Mr. Sodal had had a Hebrew scribe write to try to get the text of the Book of Mormon in block Hebrew characters onto, you know, basically less than 50 pages. And this is what he had to do. And um, this, you know, these characters over here on the left are less than one millimeter tall. Look at this character here. Do you see my mouse? <laughs> how, how are you going to write some of these characters? They're flowing with swirls and they're all over the place. How are you going to write those characters in less than a millimeter? There's no way you're going to get the textual density that they're requiring using these symbols. This, you're, going to, you're going to be getting one to three words per square inch max. Okay, so... Again, I'm. Uh, this is just pointing out some obvious. The, the more complex uh, a symbol is, um, now presumably in a logosyllabic uh, writing system, each one of these is either going to be a syllable or a word, right? And so multiple symbols would it still would be few words. Uh, but those symbols are really bizarre I, with all those swirls. Um, you know, it's almost like uh, a Brahmic uh, mix with a, <laughs> I, I have, with an Egyptian hieroglyphic with uh, an enormous amount of imagination uh, coddled from the depths of the mind of a fiery salamander. So I, um, so we have some problems to begin with the, the kind of characters, the big flowing swoopy characters, uh, we have, um, the characters from Cowdery and Frederick Williams that shows us one word, one symbol per word. This is our largest, um, sample of characters, uh, from the Whitmer family. Um, they are many of them reproduced in a publication. And I think that's 1945, right after Joseph Smith's death up, up in the upper right. So we have a small sampling, but a broad sampling, uh, about 250 characters uh, as an example of, of the potential writing on these gold plates that are made from rice paper tumbaga. <laughs> Um, now, while looking up 
all the <laughs> all the characters uh just you know, again i was just trying to collect as many different characters from different sources as i could um and so i collected those but then of course i came across charles anthon's description of the characters he was shown by martin harris and you know once i read that uh all the other points are moot because his description if it's accurate uh tells us we are not dealing with an ancient writing system so we are going uh, to read that by the way charles anthon again uh he he read and wrote several languages uh classics professor i actually have his book the classical dictionary written by charles anthon this is published in 1841 just making sure 1841 there's the title page this book was published while joseph smith was living um and it is literally a dictionary of of classical scholarship and classical language so this is what charles anthon is producing and he gives a description of what martin harris shows him so uh we have a, a letter written in could have made that book a lot skinnier if he'd had just used the reformed egyptian <laughs> so would have been the size See, of the this, Book of Mormon. This it, book, it could have been one or two characters. Absolutely. Wait, this book is uh, 1,500 pages. Whoa. Right? But, yeah, he if he used Reformed Egyptian, he could have cut that way down. But he did get the uh, Tumbaga plate thickness correct. There we go. Except for it's too malleable. It's too floppy. Those plates have to be, you know, hard as steel, right? Can't be like tissue paper. Even every time, though I'm that sorry. Thickness. Every time I pick that book up, it, it deteriorates. I'm covered in book <laughs> oh. dust now. Um, That's because you're a scholar, John. Every scholar is covered in book dust. That's how, how can it's you supposed not to buy be. a 1841 edition yeah. of Charles Anthon's Classical Dictionary? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's a score. So, get that at Walmart or Amazon. Where, where do you? Yeah, I'm that? sure. Yeah, <laughs> I I got it at Mormon Walgreens. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, uh, let's read what Charles Anthon writes about the characters he was shown by Martin Harris. Uh, Landon, will you read the orange text block? I sure can. It consisted of all kinds of crooked characters disposed in columns and had evidently been prepared by some person who had before him at the time a book containing various alphabets, Greek and Hebrew letters, crosses and flourishes, Roman letters inverted or placed sideways, were arranged in perpendicular columns, and the whole ended in a rude delineation of a circle divided into various compartments, decked with various strange marks, and evidently copied after the Mexican calendar given by Humboldt, but copied in such a way as not to reveal the source from which it was derived. Wow, I'd never heard that. I'd never he, heard that either. That's amazing. Uh, he gives another account. It's slightly different in 1841 as he's recalling it will you read the green text block to landon yeah the characters were arranged in columns like the chinese mode of writing and presented the most singular medley that i ever beheld 
Greek, Hebrew, and all sorts of letters more or less distorted, either through unskillfulness or from actual designs, were intermingled with sundry delineations of half-moons, stars, and other natural objects, and the whole ended in a rude representation of the Mexican zodiac. All right. Well, as you can imagine, this is a real problem. Uh, so I have here on the left of the slide, the Mexican calendar uh, printed by Humboldt, the, the author he's talking about. It's being produced um, and published before 1828. Uh, presumably, Joseph Smith could have seen it, but I it, maybe or maybe not. What we get, though, is first off, uh, Anton saying, look, there's all kinds of letters, Greek, Roman, Hebrew, but there's stars and moons and uh, symbols, and it's all in a, uh, 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 a table that mimics something like the Mexican calendar, right? And so, and then again, some of the texts are in columns, but then there's this table or uh, symbol or pattern of symbols and letters that are all mixed into some sort of graphic representation that looks like the Mexican calendar. Well, what is he looking at? Right? Uh, this is not, um, you know, just rows and rows of microprint of an ancient language, which is what the apologists are trying to put together in order to make it all fit. What Anton is looking at is a completely different idea of writing. It's a, it's, <laughs> so here, here is what that idea might be. Uh, on the right is, again, Sodal's um, uh, Hebrew writing of the Book of Mormon text. On the left, we get a graphical uh, plate called the Sigillum Day. And it's Latin, Sigillum, uh, the sigil of God, the sign or seal of God. And you can see, if you see my... It has letters all around. It has symbols, astronomical symbols, right? It has crosses, stars. And, um, and so this is a, was believed to encode all the knowledge of the ancients in a magical seal called the sigil of God, the sign of God. It's a cipher. It's a magical cipher, uh, a magical seal with the magical function that, according to one of the oldest sources, allowed a destined magician to have the power to possess the spirit of God, and when activated, can become the living God or the Lord God itself amongst humanity and all creation. Uh, the, per the magician could communicate with spirits as well as angels and archangels by using this he could control the elements, control every creature uh, by, through the Holy Spirit on the planet, including the Spirit of God itself. Um, the intended user also possesses the true benefic vision of God and can see all of God's mysteries. So, <laughs> so it's a folk magic. 
it, that's exactly what I thought you were describing when you were going through it. What he wore in the parchment sack around his neck. That's exactly what it sounded like to this me. This is the ideological background behind this writing system. It has nothing to do with Egyptian or Hebrew or microprint or Tumbaga plates. The reason why Joseph Smith thinks 24 plates can contain the entire history of the world is because he thinks that ancient writing, according to this tradition, we're going to get into it, the Adamic language, according to the Western esoteric tradition from which this derives, the Adamic language was a cipher language. It contained all the, every symbol contained all the secrets of the creation. It contained the mind of God. And if you could read it, you would know all the things of the earth and all the things in the mind of God. So if you could access the spirits and the angels behind this magic seal, you then could recount a thousand year history of an ancient civilization. This is where, this is the description Charles Anton is giving us. It's not an ancient writing system. It's an ancient magic system that Joseph Smith is inscribing uh, on and giving to Martin Harris. And that this is what Martin Harris is showing. Um, wow. This, this, wow. This is, this is wow. Yeah, because if you know anything about Joseph's magic worldview yeah. and his parchments and his magical spells and everything, this just lines up a hundred percent with who Joseph Smith was. Yeah. I'm kind of speechless over this. This makes so much sense. It's like something just clicked. This is exactly who he was and what he was involved in and what his family was involved in and the interest and what he knew very well too. Now, this is it. One thing one thing Anton said was that it had Roman characters on it. Were there Roman characters in 600 BC? Uh no no. No. Um Look, we're going to go over the characters. Again, I'm not a linguist. I don't know ancient Egyptian, uh, but neither did Joseph Smith. Yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't think so Roman funny. was Roman wasn't Egyptian, though. And no, 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 no. There's, uh, you know, the the so you have the Etruscan and then the Roman and the Romans in alphabetic script. Uh, the Roman script comes from the Phoenician uh so um i i uh i i it was a thousand years old but i didn't know if they had roman characters or any of that until much you know much later uh so it's an interesting point anyway that he mentioned roman in there so yeah well <laughs> yeah exactly uh look this is a copy of uh the uh hypocephalus in the book of abraham that was uh, written down. Of course, uh, this is um, a candler, right, who uh, sells the Egyptian papyri to Joseph Smith. Uh, so they copy this part of the hypocephalus down. When Joseph Smith sees this, he I tell you, he is looking at that as a magic seal. And he's seeing that as containing the entire history of Abraham. Um, the that is, you know, all the magic words in the Adamic or post-Adamic language that gets embedded into Egyptian, which is a belief through the Middle Ages. We'll talk about that. So I, I, I'm just saying that um, all of this is coming from Joseph Smith's magic worldview and not from 
language systems, okay? And not from history. Well, while we're on the topic, I thought we would just go over um, a couple texts that were circulated in the Middle Ages. What's this have to do with the Book of Mormon? Well, it turns out quite a bit, apparently. Um, there was a text called the Sec Secretum Secretorum, the Secret Book of Secrets. And it... Uh, circulate i mean the earliest is arabic most of these uh astrological magical texts are coming out of uh islamic writing right so islam holds the intellectual traditions of ancient of the ancient world for a few centuries before it gets um imported into europe and the first texts start coming into europe around the 10th century but these are hand copied manuscripts and there's no printing press um, but this text, uh, the, the secret book of secrets was probably the most popular text throughout Europe, except for the Bible. Everybody, uh, everybody who could read in, uh, the upper knowledgeable circles wanted a copy of this text. The royalty got a copy of this text. So what is it? Well, the secretum secretorum claims to be a treatise written by Aristotle to Alexander the Great during his conquest of Persia. Its topics range from ethical questions that face a ruler to astrology, medical and magical properties of plants, gems, numbers, to an account of a unified science that is accessible only to a scholar with the proper moral and intellectual background. It has a huge magic worldview embedded into it. Copeland's English translation is divided into sections the enlarged 13th century edition includes alchemical references and an early version of the Emerald Tablet, which is another text we're going to, we're going to talk about. But here is uh, a, a leaf of the Secretum Secretorum as magic tables, astrological tables. Um, and again, it's just the an overall view of the things you need to know in order to run the society. Right. Um, at about the same time, there is a Hebrew text called the Zohar. It's 13th century CE. And uh, it belongs to the magical mystical tradition of Hebrew, the Kabbalah. And in the Zohar, there is a tradition that the stone tablets that Moses received on the mount from the finger of God originally was a sapphire tablet that was a cube. All right, so the Ten Commandments tablets that we're used to with the rounded tops on two, the, according to this tradition, the original tablet was a cube of sapphire, and on it was recorded in the true order and language of God, all the knowledge of the creation. Everything you wanted to know, how the world was created, all the prophecy and history of the world, everything is recorded on this sapphire cube. The tradition of this sapphire cube goes back a thousand years earlier because it's recorded in the Talmud, 200 to 500 CE, uh, where the original law given to Moses was given to him on a sapphire tablet. 
okay, a square tablet. Uh, the Zohar calls it a cubic object that all the knowledge of God is inscribed onto. And so according to this tradition, because the people were wicked and were not noble enough to receive the true order and language of God, Moses broke the sapphire tablet, just wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone tablet, and that's what he gave the people. But again, the running through medieval Europe are these traditions of mysticism, magical language, the Adamic language, all containing all the knowledge of the creation of God in a small set of magical texts and seals. Okay? Then we have one more example, and this is the Emerald Tablet. Again, this is uh, the Corpus Hermeticum coming out of Egypt. It's an astrological magic tradition. Uh, and it, it's roughly the same dates. Uh, the Emerald Tablet is compact and cryptic hermetic text. It was supposedly written down by Hermes Trismegustus, Hermes Thrice Great, uh, who's a magical figure. He's a, a mix between Hermes and thought. And on this Emerald Tablet, he writes all the secrets of the universe, all the secrets of creation. This tradition also comes out of Islamic texts where the tablet itself is called a talisman. It's a talisman, just it, and it is in large part a replica of the sapphire tablet that Moses receives the law of God on. So we have the secret book of secrets. We have the sapphire tablet that gives us the Mosaic law. And we have the emerald tablet that contains all the secrets of the universe all on these uh, condensed magical Adamic language seals um, that are believed to have existed in the ancient of days. And, uh, and so this is the thought world that's percolating through the Middle Ages amongst scholars. This underwrites the scientific revolution. I know our, our history books want us to think that they're all you know, being really smart and doing modern thinking. But, uh, you know, it was John Maynard Keynes that called Isaac Newton perhaps one of the greatest minds in human history, not the first scientist, but the last of the magicians. Because he was right. His thought world was this world. It was alchemy and astrology and magic. Um, and so this brings me to uh, a really interesting figure, and we're going to get back to this Sigillum Day. Uh, this is John Dee. He was the court astrologer, mathematician, philosopher of Queen Elizabeth I. Um, he lives in the 16th century. What's really interesting about him, this is after the printing press, and by the late 1500s, he has over 5,000 books in his, in his own library. It's probably the largest library in Europe. He's got more books than Oxford. And, um, but John Dee is a really interesting guy because he is completely into hermetic philosophy and divination. And he, here are some of his magic items. So what does John Dee do? He creates this Siglum Day on a wax seal. He creates a holy table he has a scribe, Ed, Edgar Kelly, and um, I have to tell you, uh, who put me on to John D is uh, 
the woman I'm dating, Wendy, she's got a doctorate in medieval and Renaissance studies from Boston University and did so much research on John D. I was talking to her about what I was going over and she goes, oh, you need to read John D. And so she gives me all this information and it turns out the world of John D. is and the world of Joseph Smith is an almost an exact duplicate of the world of John D. John D. Uh, takes this Sigillum Day and he uses a showstone, a seer stone. And he uses this magic seal uh, with a scryer to scry the knowledge of God uh, from these symbols. And so he has conversations with angels. And the angels tell him all the secrets of the cosmos. And uh, so he, uh, he produces with his scryer, Edgar Kelly, uh, massive amounts of text about his conversations with the other world. He's sort of like a Faust figure. He, he's, he's got the math, he's got the science of the day, he's got it all down and none of this is satisfying to him. He wants eternal truth and so he goes to magic to get it. And he uses a seer stone uh, and revelations to obtain all cosmic knowledge from the other side. Now, un unfortunately, uh, you know, surprisingly, a lot of this seems incredibly made up. <laughs> it doesn't, though. It doesn't at yeah. all. And, and also, I... there's wife swapping going on. <laughs> you know, there's, there there's, always there's, is. When you turn to the dark know, arts, it's, it eventually it's, ends up in wife swapping. There's a lot yeah, but... of similar things going on. Uh, and uh, sadly, I mean, John D is this fascinating, interesting character who is really an apex scholar in the Middle Ages, and, and yet this is his worldview. Um, well, eventually he gets discredited, uh, and, uh, and he dies poor, uh, outcast from the court. So that's a sad story. I have actually heard him and his existence in the court used by apologists. Uh, specifically, I think it was in the, in the debate uh, with RFM and the Midnight Mormons, where one of them said, yeah, but John Day, like, like, of course, if he was doing it, and it was real to them, you know, why wouldn't folk magic be real in Mormon history? So I think they look at that somehow grounded in some kind of credibility, which is really interesting to me. I'm just showing guys that there is a long historical tradition running over centuries, that the idea that all of uh, the knowledge of God, the creation, and of history could be recorded in uh, a divine language, uh, which is then in turn recorded in a divine seal that can only be read through divine means. And this is exactly what Joseph Smith does when he translates the Book of Mormon. This The thought world is coming not from academic history or ancient writing systems. It's coming from the Western esoteric tradition uh, through this magic worldview. Running through this, through the Middle Ages, is another idea. And that is this ancient divine language of God, the Adamic language, the language of Enoch, the language of the patriarchs is preserved in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, Landon, can you read that text block? 
Yeah, centuries before the Rosetta Stone enabled linguists to decode the essentially phonetic nature of the Egyptian glyphs, early modern philosophers and philo philologists theorized that the language was both universal and divine. When this idea was adopted by Neoplatonists, <laughs> uh, philosophical circles emphasized the ability of hieroglyphics to instantly denote an idea or a series of ideas. It was the Neoplatonic interest in hieroglyphics as a symbol system of communication that fostered the growth of the popular emblematic tradition, where a picture could indeed speak a thousand words and pithy conceits could be hidden from the eyes of the vulgar. That's from Deborah Harkness's John D's Conversations with Angels, where she's recounting the belief that <clears throat> Egyptian hieroglyphs, literally a single symbol was worth a thousand words. That it, it derived from the same magic tradition where the divine mind of God was uh, embedded in these sacred symbols that can only be read through spiritual means. Okay? So... So this is the ideological background that enters into uh, 19th century New England um, Great Awakening Christianity with Joseph Smith and his family. Look, magic systems exist in all periods of Christian history. From the very first century, we get magical amulets um, from the earliest Christians, right? Uh, Christianity didn't invent the magical system. They inherited it. This goes back thousands of years uh, through incantations and spells that all peoples of all cultures have been doing probably for tens of thousands of years. So part of that whole oral mindset where truth is cosmic fact and where you think analogically and astrologically you know, if that star causes the herds to go into the uh, valley, well, you know, if I copy that star in a, in a ritual, uh, then I can get the, the power of that star in my life. Well, if I copy that star in a symbol, then, then I, I can use that symbol to encode everything I know about that entire natural cycle. And this gets translated into well, you know, I just collect some symbols and collect some ingredients and I can now influence nature. And you, you get, you know, you get these magic systems. So they've existed for thousands of years. But the important point is, is they were primary through the Middle Ages. I mean, this isn't, um, this isn't some group of people in the backwoods. This is, this is the court astrologer and mathematician of Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> This is Isaac Newton, Copernicus, uh, Kepler, Abrahi, right? The, the great minds of the scientific revolution have one foot in this world, if not two feet. So um, the occult symbols may represent entire incantations, ritual and cosmological scenarios, and alchemical or astro astrological tableaus. Right again. So here we get this idea of a symbol representing an entire network of knowledge that you could have access to if you had the right ritual implements, the right incantations, the right spiritual knowledge. Folk tradition and magic assumed that great secrets could be encoded in ciphers, 
Joseph Smith's assumptions of textual density do not derive from writing systems. It derives from his magical training, right? And so here we have, by the way, uh, top middle is his Jupiter talisman. And it's got symbols on it that are actually copied out of Francis Barrett's book, The Magus, which we know he read or had access to, which recounts magical traditions um, and also talks about John Dee, <laughs> uh, the, the Emerald Tablet. Um, here is his uh, lamin or, you know, the, the magical symbols that were folded and worn around the neck that you mentioned, Rebecca. Uh, this is the thought world of Joseph Smith. So let me go back. So when we uh, recall Charles Anton's description of the writing that Martin Harris shows him, what he's looking at is a magical seal. He's looking, he's looking at the Sigillum Day, the sign, sigil, cipher of God that Joseph Smith believes uh, can encode all the knowledge of the cosmos this is why we get 24 gold plates containing the entire history of the world, all the prophecies of the world through the millennium, right? Um, this can only be conceived from this worldview, which in some quarters is, you know, is a mainstream worldview, right? I mean, it, 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 it has percolated through the Middle Ages. Now, sure enough, by the 19th century, mainstream christianity has rejected this the the protestant reformation decouples itself from this mystical esoteric tradition roots itself entirely in text and historicism um and and so this uh, so you get and and of course in many catholic circles it's also been decoupled uh but sure enough, even today, there's a magical tradition in Christianity. Yeah, you can still find people with this worldview. So, um, all right. Let's, uh, any questions? Was that helpful at all? <laughs> no, I think we're being a little quiet. Well, number one, my dogs are barking, but our minds are sort of being blown on this. Oh my goodness, puppies, be quiet. I mean, it just makes so much sense to me now that I see it that way. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, the church finally has had to admit, yes, there's magical elements. We're talking magic worldview, admit it, and then make it seem like Joseph moved on past that, you know, knew better. Instead, we're seeing that it informed and influenced every single thing that he did and everything he created. I, do you feel that way, Landon? Yeah, I, I'm actually sitting here thinking when, when I had my, uh, you know, faith crisis, if you want to call it that. And I was doing my study. And what I was finding is I'd, I'd research things in, uh, you know, from the Book of Mormon or church history, and they kept falling apart. They couldn't stand by themselves. They didn't complement each other. So when I started reading books on science that I was looking for to see if the, if the things from the church lined up with science, such as DNA or linguistics or other things, all the pieces just kept falling into place, falling into place, falling into place. And that's how I knew this is the truth and this is not, because this keeps combining and keeps supporting each other. Everything in here supports each other. What you're talking about here supports everything that I'm 
read about Joseph Smith now, his yep. magic worldview, his seer stones, his the, the way that he Parchment. his cipher, all, all, all of the things that he did as a young man now show up and you're just putting all the pieces together again for me. And I'm just sitting here going, oh my gosh, everything's lining up. Everything's meshing again. I can see how this whole thing unveiled now once I know who Joseph Smith was and that he did have layman's and he had Jupiter talismans and he uh, looked in a hat and he had seer stones. All of this now makes sense. This this is incredible. I, I'm more speechless than, than yeah, that's <laughs> You've done it again, John. We can hardly yeah. speak, which probably our viewers appreciate, but oh my goodness, this is a revolutionary thought. And I hope that our viewers are tracking this because it makes so much sense when you understand the history of Joseph Smith and who he was. This is incredible. Well, I, um, again, just after reading Charles Anthon's description, it's pretty clear. Look, had they counted the plates, there was a set of plates that Joseph Smith made. Had they counted them, you wouldn't have gotten three to 600 plates. I, you wouldn't have even gotten 24. He thinks 24 plates could contain the entire history of the world. You're probably at 12 plates. <laughs> but you only need a couple plates with magic seals in order to produce this. So the only question, you know, in my mind is, how exactly did he sit down and, and create the text? That's a very interesting question to me. I think it's fascinating, and but we're not going to talk about that tonight. Just uh, uh, as... As my own interest, I return to these characters uh, that are written on the characters document by Whitmer and Cowdery and um, Can I ask Frederick one William. question? Yes. Would Anthon have recognized any of the occult symbolism? Would he would he have known that's what that was and said this reminds me of a, or would he just not have been aware? I don't. I you know he says it's uh, it looked like the Mexican calendar. Right. He used some of those uh, other so, things. He so never that, said that is what he's looking at because he's reading he's reading notes from the field uh, from scholars going out and looking. Right. So he's not part of this esoteric magical tradition. He right. I mean, again, it's been it's been separated in main largely mainstream by the 19th century. Uh, astrology is pretty much gone in mainstream uh, Western academic thought. Um, so uh, it's uh, so no, I, I don't think he would have uh, recognized the magic worldview in what he was looking at. Uh, but I recognize, but that's what it is. It's the magic worldview coming from this uh, tradition. And that is yeah. the tradition Joseph Smith is in. That's what he's thriving in. And so, um, you know, I, I agree, Landon, all the pieces start fitting when when you put them together and you say, well, here it is. Um, and, and you're saying the Anton characters that we all are so familiar with, that that's not what he was looking at, because that doesn't match at all. It's not a circle. That's it's correct. That's correct. So these those are just characters that were written down by either Christian or John Whitmer um, that are from the gold plates, or at least they're supposed to be from the gold plates, but they're not, it's not what Anton saw. It's not what Martin Harris had. 
just a, okay. a, a, a list of characters. So they're supposedly reformed Egyptian characters. Correct. But they're not the ones Anton saw. And when we saw, when, when we read Martin Harris's, I think he said they were like, uh, Martin Harris said that he had verified that they were like Acadian or uh, I can't remember, but they yes. were, he, he didn't say they were reformed or Egyptian. It was other languages. So, right. Right. Again, that's in Joseph Smith history. I, I don't have it pulled up, but a few verses after the one we read, Joseph Smith says, Martin Harris said, Charles Anton said, this was the most accurate translation I had ever read. <laughs> and there's your gospel doctrine lesson right there. That and was somehow that Charles Anton could, could translate reformed Egyptian, evidently, that's, because uh, just him and Joseph were the only two who could do that. <laughs> that's correct. And John D., but he was dead. Yeah, <laughs> but Joseph Smith may have been talking to him through his seer stone in a hat. So um, I wanted just uh, one of my thoughts is what can I learn from that Anton from the Whitmer characters document? Uh, again, I'm not an ancient linguist, so, you know, I got to put that out there. But there's some things I can learn just by looking at the symbols. Uh, and so. I thought, okay, I'm just going to look at the symbols and see what I can learn from them. So here on your screen, here are the writing systems human beings have created since the invention of writing. Okay, there, there's five major writing systems. I can look at the characters and without being able to translate any of them, I can probably determine which writing system of these five those characters would exist in. So I'm going to explain how you do that. All right. The left two, alphabets and abjads. An abjad is a consonant alphabet. That's like Hebrew. An alphabet is where a symbol represents a single sound, A, B, C, D. Uh, and so you're only, uh, you're constructing words by just putting phonetic values together using single letter symbols. An abjad is uh, an alphabet that doesn't have vowels. You, so you just write the consonants and then you put the vowels in by the context of, of what the writing is saying. Oh, Hebrew. Hebrew, that's correct. So uh, the far left alphabet, the, I've got an example there of English, which is the Roman alphabet. And then uh, the abjad or consonant alphabet, there, that's Hebrew. Now, the thing with alphabets is because it's just a symbol representing a phonetic sound, you know, there's only so many sounds in a language. And so your alphabets tend to be less than 30 characters long. I think the, the one with the most characters has like 35. Okay. So alphabets and abjads will have less than 35 characters in the writing system. Then we have a syllabary. Now remember a syllabary is a syllable and generally it's a consonant with a vowel but sometimes it's a couple consonants together uh but again if a, a syllabary if you have 20 consonants and five vowels you're going to have 100 symbols in your system right each syllable wed to a consonant and if you have uh, symbols that represent a couple consonants you could have anywhere basically between 80 and 170 symbols in a syllabic writing system. Well, this is uh, like 
do re mi fa so la ti do that's yes yes so i uh i japanese korean these are syllabaries um uh i'm just trying to think there's i know the some asian syllabaries but um the um you get several syllabaries in the second millennium bce um and and we went over the uh biblosyllabary again it's a it's a writing system that's untranslated but they know it's a syllabary because out of all the examples they have over 2000 symbols that they have found and there's only about 114 that repeat so 114 symbols in the writing system that's too many for an alphabet too many for an abjad or consonant alphabet it tells us it's probably a syllabary um what it's that it's a syllabary there is an alphabet syllabary called an abugida and that is basically a syllabary with a consonant wed to a vowel, except the symbol of the consonant stays the same and they add the vowel, different vowels to it. So you get a, in syllabaries, every symbol is its own symbol. Okay. And in Abu Gita, you'll have a, uh, a consonant symbol and they'll attach to it a vowel. And then they'll have the same consonant symbol attached with a different vowel. And so you can kind of see the, the consonants and how they're wed to different vowels in that writing system. The thing about an alphabetic syllabary or an abugida is those are developed in India. So the, it's a Brahmin script. It's not really developed anywhere else. Uh, ironically, we get Abugidas in, uh, you know, 17th century Native American. <laughs> uh, there's a, an Englishman, um, I guess that's 18th, 19th century. Uh, what's his name? James Allen, where he uh, starts putting uh, some Native American tribes. He, he starts creating writing systems for their language. And, and they use, this is the Algonquin uh, languages. They basically create a Abugida writing system uh, to describe their language. Um, all right, but that then, that was not created till seventeen or eighteen hundred. Uh, so actually, um, the official publication of this writing system—it's in the Northeast, but it comes out in eighteen forty, and it, it, it interested me. In the, in the fact that, um, I again, I have to look, I think the guy's name is James Allen. He's an Englishman who's uh, creating these writing systems for the uh, indigenous people and their languages. And he's, he's working on them over years. And he's doing this in the, you know, North American Northeast. Um, I, it would just be very interesting if, if anyone at Dartmouth was familiar with his work because that could bleed over into Joseph Smith, because we're going to see here in a second that that character document has some really interesting Abu Gita elements in it. 
That sounds like a job for Randy Bell to look into that. Randy, you've got your task. (laughs) The the reason I ask that is that comes up a lot in the comments on your previous episodes is everyone says, what about the, how, what is it called? The Algonquin? Algonquin, yeah. Algonquin, yeah. Yeah, that 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 one comes up as a oh that's proof that they had writing uh, in in the Book of Mormon in the Northeast, uh, which it's far too late. That's post-Columbian. Yeah, contact. Right. Correct. Uh, so, uh, no, there's no writing in North America pre-Columbian contact. Um, and again, let's say they find a scrap of writing pre-Columbian contact. That's not your evidence. You're looking for tens of thousands of texts. <laughs> this is what the Book of Mormon demands. You don't get to get out of that. That is what the Book of Mormon demands. You want me to take it seriously, then I'm going to take the text seriously. And therefore, that's what I should find. Don't give me this post-Columbian Native American script. Stop. That's 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 don't give me uh, Tumbaga rice paper plates. <laughs> that, that's not appropriate. Um, you've got to do better. Uh, in any case, uh, so then our last writing system is a logosyllabary. And these are all the, the logosyllabaries are the earliest writing systems. They're picture writing, where a symbol now represents a syllable or a word or idea, picture writing. And in logosyllabaries, you can have hundreds of symbols. And this is what we get with cuneiform, Akkadian and Sumerian and Egyptian hieroglyphs and mine. Chinese. Chinese. Yes, Chinese. So here are the writing systems. So look, I'm going to take this character document and I'm going to compare it to my writing systems. And I'm just going to say, what can I learn from the character document? Well, the first thing I do is I just count how many separate symbols there are on this document. There's over 200 symbols listed on this document. I stopped counting separate symbols at about 70, where I'm like, well, I now know this is not an alphabet or an abject. Why? Because it's got to have less than about 35 characters in order for it to qualify to be an alphabet or an abject. So if this is a legitimate writing system, I can cut those two out. Okay. Now because I've already there aren't got a that problem. many sounds, right? There aren't that many sounds. That's right. That's what you mentioned before. You're That's only right. going to have a limited number. The, the human <laughs> mouth can only That's make right. a certain number of sounds. Okay. That is correct. Um, so uh, already I have a problem because I'm actually looking for an alphabetic script. This is what the Book of Mormon's asking me to look for. Because it's this reductive alphabetic script that allows the mind to decouple itself from the natural cycles that eventually um, transforms a polytheistic oral system into a monotheistic literate system. Okay? So this is not an alphabet. This is not an abjad. Now, again, the Book of Mormon tells me that they were writing in Hebrew, which is an abjad, which is an alphabetic writing system. They're writing in Hebrew and Reformed Egyptian. Remember, at the very end, we're told by, is it Mormon or Moroni, that they wrote, if if the play, if the space on the plates was sufficient enough, they would have written in Hebrew. 
But because the, the space on the plates wasn't sufficient enough, they wrote in Reformed Egyptian. And that tells us they're writing in both Hebrew and Reformed Egyptian. Well, let me tell you, if you're writing in an alphabetic system, you are not going to be writing in a logosyllabic system. A logosyllabic system systems are incredibly complex. They take years to master. And, and, and most of the scribes in, who wrote in these systems only knew that they were only writing contracts and receipts and inventories. They didn't know all the ritual, astronomical, cosmological um, puns that were going on in these writing systems. So uh, these writing, it's a very complex system that gets simplified into an alphabetic system. And you don't go backwards. We find logosyllabaries developing into syllabaries, developing into alphabets, but we don't find alphabets developing back into logosyllabaries. That doesn't happen. Okay, but in any case, just by counting the different characters on the characters document, I can tell you this isn't an alphabet or an abjet. Okay. Now, now I'm just going to look at the characters. And uh, if, you, if you're not seeing the screen, this is really not going to be very helpful for you because I'm highlighting different characters. But I immediately see three black squares. And so, look, I need to see repetition of symbols, right? If it's an actual, I mean, again, we know that this is actually a magical seal <laughs> and not an actual writing system. But if this is an actual writing system, I need to see repetition of symbols because it's even in logosyllabaries, there's syllabic elements, phonetic elements. There are some things that you need syllable writing for you can't write everything in pictures this is going to be a real problem really quick because you need syllables to write names you can't write a picture of a name you have to spell the name out and and once you know that this entire writing system falls to pieces in my view i'm going to show you why how have we never thought of that <laughs> Um, <laughs> is your mind blown now, Landon? How have we never thought of that? Well, I'm, I'm trying to think in Egyptian, uh, they'd write the king's name in a cartouche. Um, That's correct. What what would that be considered? Well, so there's different uh, phonetic ele elements in that uh, circuit, that circular symbol called a cartouche. The French, I think, named that. The cartouche is a, a bullet shell. And they thought it looked like a bullet shell, so they called it a cartouche. But it's that circular symbol that contains the phonetic elements of the writing system that spell out the name of the king or the name of the person. So it's sil uh, syllabic or what? Syllabic, yes. Syllabic. It's syllab so it's syllables or um, like a, a cartouche that spelled out Landon would have... Um, probably a, a syllable that was either lan, L-N, and dun, D-N, or la, ned, on, right? I mean, there's a couple, there's different ways that you could create your phonetic sounds to create your name, Landon. Where is your name from anyway, Landon? Landon, what is that? Is that uh, I have no idea. 
But I do have a cartouche with my name on it that I got in Egypt. So <laughs> okay. go get it. So let's go with that. <laughs> All right. So um, so look, these just pop right out at me and they say, OK, I get repetition of symbols. This is good. I expect to find that. But then I immediately run into something that's really interesting to me. I have this symbol that looks like a birthday cake. Right. It's got a horizontal line with four vertical lines, four dots under the vertical line and a semicircular swoosh underneath. Altogether, that's the symbol. OK. However, over here, I have that horizontal line with the four dots and the four vertical lines have been removed and the underlying semicircle has been removed. But that's the same graphic element that I find here. Right here, I have the horizontal line with the four vertical lines and the uh, the swoosh underneath, but not the dots. Do you see? Yep. So I've got the symbol repeated, but then I have elements of the symbol. The symbol is being torn apart. And this part is used here, and this part is used there, and this part is the whole part. Um. I look at that and I say, I'm probably not looking at a syllabary. A syllabary, again, that's that 60 to 170, 180 characters. What makes syllabaries unique is that each symbol is its own symbol. Sometimes some of the symbols, you know, can be very close to each other, but I don't know any where the symbol is torn apart and used in, in this manner, not in a syllabary. I look at that and I think, what writing system does that? What writing system? Well, you know, actually, I, I believe in the Mayan, you could take part of a graphical glyph and put it over here to represent the entire glyph. Um, but that's a logosyllabic system. So when I look at this, I think this is probably not a syllabary. This is this. Is, if, if it's a real system, I'm probably looking at a logosyllabary just by looking at that graphic element. Well, then I get this. I get this three or E. Um, and <laughs> it's rotated, right? So here we have the three looking like an M. It's, you know, standing on its feet. But here it's facing right. Here it's facing left. Um, but here it's got a dash coming out of it. Here it's got a dot underneath it. Here, it's got a dash underneath it. Here, it's connected to a, a completely other character. <laughs> I, this is not a syllabary. Um, I've got this symbol that's being rotated around like a clock and then with flourishes being added to it. This is what reminds me of the Abu Gita. That's that consonant that stays the same but is wed to a different vowel um, is that what I'm looking at? Again, I'm not a linguist. I, I would need a linguist to tell me what they would think about this. But at this point, it looks really suspicious to me. Are you following what I'm saying? Yeah. We're, yep, we're, we're narrowing down what kind of system. Yeah, is. we're narrowing down what kind That's of system right. it, it is. It's not this. It's not this. It's, it's not, not that. It's not, an, no. it's not an abjad. It's not a syllabary. I've got these twos. Um, 
that are very similar, but one has a swirly curl and the other one has a sort of little M, um, but they're repeated. That's interesting. You know, when the uh, uh, Romans inherited their alphabetic system, the letter C is ka. They had that sound in their language, but they also had ga which wasn't part of the writing system that they were alphabetic writing system that they were using. So they took the C and they added a little line to it and made a G. That's where we get the G. And so I'm looking at uh, these twos. They look very similar, except one's augmented from the other. So what is that? Again, is that an alphabet? Is this... I think these Sounds letters laughing. are all over the place. <laughs> Uh, we have these H's with the same, you know, they're, they're very similar, but they have different flourishes. Uh, so this writing system is using symbols that look very similar to one another and yet are slightly different, that are rotated, that are torn apart. Elements are used here. Elements are used there. This symbol is attached to other symbols here, but not attached to other symbols there. Um, it looks really hodgepodge so when i return to my writing systems i just by looking at the characters i can tell you it's not an alphabet abjad and syllabary it probably tells me it's not an abu gita despite the fact that that three is rotated and added to different graphical elements if i had to guess i'm looking at a logo syllabary but it's a really unique one um and so, again, just by looking at the symbols, you can determine this is probably the writing system uh, if it were a legitimate writing system. Well, here we have um, an analysis. There's actually a translation of the character's document written by Jerry Grover, who commented on the last uh, presentation. He made several comments. And he, he, he wrote a large treatise on this character's document uh, he, he points out that on that document, there are 222 symbols, 103 is unique. He calls it a logosyllabic system, which is what I would identify it as. So we agree there. Um, he thinks they're numbers, which is interesting. Why, why would you write the numbers in that way? Uh, in any case, uh, that's his, that's his assessment, that it's a logosyllabic writing system that has elements of heretic, demotic, maybe Sumerian, Elamite, right? So he's playing with different writing systems. You know, I, I just disagree with it. Uh, here, here is the big problem. Um, and I'm going to show the Egyptian alphabet and grammar to illustrate this. Uh, we we have this is a lot of the Egyptian alphabet and grammar is in Joseph Smith's hand writing, and this is written uh, as an explanation of the symbols on the Egyptian papyri that he purchases from Michael Chandler. Right, so you're familiar with the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. Yep. It's several leaves of writing where yep. over here you have a symbol and then a translation of the symbol. Okay. He did this when he was doing the Book of Abraham. The Book of Abraham, not the Book yeah. of Mormon. However, 
his writing system looks very suspiciously similar to the Book of Mormon characters. I here though, uh, he has a symbol which is a vertical line, and the translation of it is Bethka, the greatest place of happiness, exceeding extending beyond anything. This should be inserted between Iota and Zubzulowan, which are two other graphic elements. And then down here, we have another symbol. And it's trend, It's a single symbol. It looks kind of like a fish hook. I see a fish hook. What do you see? I, I see a fish hook. Could be an earring. <laughs> oh, yeah, it might be an earring. Hair, it might maybe. be uh, Rebecca's broken earring. Could, yeah. It could be my broken <laughs> earring, which is why we yes. started late. That's right. Or a lock of hair. I can uh, see a cute uh, swirly a, a lock of hair. I think, I think it's a fish hook because the translation of it is Abraham. This is Abraham, the name of Abraham. And here's the translation. Abraham, a father of many nations, a prince of peace, one who keeps the commandments of God, a patriarch, a rightful heir, a high priest. All right. So this single symbol is a name, Abraham. It represents apparently a lost episode where Abraham was a pirate beating a... <laughs> Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> leading a band of merry men on, on on a ship which is how he got to the new world there are ships yep we're um, dealing with now ships. it's all coming together <laughs> now you're blowing my mind ship. again this is and too that's much how they got here <laughs> all right when you look at that the, the first thing i thought of is this is wrong because you cannot write name proper nouns, proper names with a single symbol. You can't do that. In fact, here is more of the uh, Egyptian alphabet and grammar. And uh, what's really interesting, again, this is coming from Joseph Smith's magic worldview. Here's a name, Pa A, means the first man or Adam coming from. Adam, right? Pele ah. Oh, God, hear the words of my mouth. That's the Adamic language. Interestingly enough, John D., uh, when he used the Siglum Day to talk to angels on the other side, he wore a ring, which was a talisman. And the, the, the word Pele was inscribed on the ring, which was one of the high names of God. And it gave him power to to read the Siglum day. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if that's coincidence, but I think it's kind of cool. Um, anyway, look, uh, Pa A is again, it's the single symbol with a, a flourish coming out of the right. And the translation is Adam, the first man, Adam. But then it also means keys are right over patriarchal right by appointment. So, in the um, Egyptian alphabet and grammar, a single symbol can have different layers of meaning. So it, in one layer, it's the name Adam, but in another layer, it also means priesthood keys and the rights of the priesthood, right? Here, down here, we have this, um, I don't know, it looks like a staple. And the word is ho-oop-ha. And it's a name. It's a proper noun. It's Queen Katunum, a distinct female of royal lineage 
or descent from her whom Egypt was discovered while it was underwater, who was the daughter of Ham. This is what's written here as the translation of this single symbol. It's a proper noun and name, and it's Queen Katunum. But then on the next page, the translation continues, and we learn that the same symbol, the same word also means a lineage with whom a record of the fathers was entrusted by the tradition of Ham, and according to the tradition of their elders, by whom also the tradition of the art of embalming was kept. <laughs> so a single symbol represents a proper name, Abraham, Adam, Queen Katunum. It also represents a layer of different meanings. In this case, priesthood keys, priesthood rites, uh, traditions descending from Ham, the art of embalming, right? So in one symbol, we get these layers of meaning being embedded in it. Well, this is not an ancient writing system. This is an ancient magic system, right? You get this kind of thinking in that Sigillum day. You got, you got these different letters that you can read in an infinite number of ways as you use your spiritual seer stone to uh, translate them. Um, but the real problem, again, is I am not aware of a writing system where a proper name, a proper noun, mostly names, uh, is recorded in a single symbol. How, imagine writing out everyone in the phone book with their own symbol, yeah. right? You'd have That's to impossible. Unless everybody had the exact same name, uh, or you had 10 names that you called everybody by. Like That's in correct. Korea, Mr. Lee. <laughs> I, I'm in Korea a lot, and there's Lee, there's like 10 surnames or something. <laughs> so. There are a lot of similar names, but as it turns out, uh, this breaks down really quick. And in fact, uh, writing systems at the very beginning develop syllabic elements so that they can spell out names, right? There are two things you need syllables or phonemes for, and that is names and foreign words. If you, if you come across a foreign word, you're not going to represent that with a picture writing or a single symbol. You got to spell it out. So names and foreign words require syllabic elements in your writing system. So here I have the Narmer palette. It's uh, one of the earliest examples of Egyptian writing that we have. And this is King Narmer, uh, thought to be the very first king or pharaoh of Egypt. It's dated between 3000, 3200 BCE. And already in between, this is the goddess, the cow goddess uh, that becomes Hathor. But in between her is a graphic element. And this is the name Narmer. Here it is down here. It's a catfish, which has a syllabic sound of ner and a chisel, which has a syllabic sound of mer. And you put them together and it's narmer. That's his name. This is the earliest, you know. So and the catfish and the chisel are in this palace facade. And that tells us he's the king. Look. If I wanted to write 
uh, the name of a king in a writing system, I, I need a determinative to tell you this name is the king. So I'm going to write a crown or a scepter, and that represents kingship. And then next to it, I'm going to write the name of the king. And that's going to tell me this guy is a king, right? If I get rid of the name and all I write is a crown or a scepter, that, that might mean king, but I don't know which king, right? And so what we have in this graphic element is a palace facade. And in this early writing system, that's telling us here's royalty and his name is Nar Mur. It's syllabically spelled out. Um, a literal translation would be catfish stinger because the chisel is hitting, striking, catfish striker. It's a, probably a military title because look, he's actually defeating all his foes. There is this preoccupation in every culture, in every ancient society that the king is always killing everybody. <laughs> That's how you know he's the king, right? That's, right. That's how you get so, there. <laughs> so he's uh, he's uniting uh, the two kingdoms, the North and South Kingdom. He's wearing the two crowns. He's uniting Egypt by overthrowing all his enemies. And we know his name because it's syllabically spelled out on the palette at this very early date. So they've already got syllabic elements in the writing system when they develop the writing system and they're writing the names of the kings in that way. Well, I take that and I look over here. Here is the fish hook of Abraham. That's a single Abraham. That's three syllables. His name should have three symbols. Okay. Abraham. That should be a three symbol name. I've got a single fish hook. That doesn't work. Here is the um, Book of Mormon uh, written. Uh, uh, this is Frederick G. Williams, I think. And, uh, I, I can't remember which one. It's either Oliver Cowdery or Frederick Williams. But again, Mormon is a single symbol, a flourished P. Uh, that should be more mon. That should be two symbols, right? Um, so, so proper names require phonetic or syllabic pronunciations. And these writing systems, both in the Book of Abraham and in the characters of the Book of Mormon, give us single symbol names. And uh, to me, this is a real problem. Now, maybe someone can show me a writing system where that happens. But again, I... Uh, yeah, I know of none. In order, in in look, in order to write a, a name in a single abstract symbol, you have to create a mythoglyph. What do I mean by that? If if I drew a cross in a Christian context, you would think of Jesus, Jesus Christ, right? You would only think that in a Christian context. You wouldn't be able to think that in any other context. But if if I drew a cross to represent the name Jesus Christ, I would only know that if I knew all the traditions, festivals, and religion of Christianity. Then I know the story of Jesus that he dies on the cross. And then I could maybe relate that single symbol to the name Jesus Christ. Try doing that to everyone in the phone book. You would have to create a religious festival 
for everyone in the phone book so that you could represent everyone in the phone book by a single symbol so that other people would know it. Oh yeah, that's this guy. We celebrate his day on this day and that's his symbol. Oh yeah, that's this woman. We celebrate. Do you understand what I'm saying? In order to create a single symbol name uh, requires an extraordinary amount of uh, abstracting a graphical element that, that has to have an enormous amount of cultural um cultural edifices behind it and uh and thus you don't get that in writing systems so i just look at this and say this is not a real writing system uh, that makes a lot of sense everyone would need their own ideology like yes. you would have to understand their entire backstory and ideology and everything surrounding them to have them be represented by one symbol like the cross. That is right, very right. interesting. Right. And even if you said you had a small community and you assigned each person and said, this is your symbol mm -hmm. and everyone in the community recognized that person by their symbol, that would only last as long as you knew that person once that person mm -hmm. was dead that symbol would mean absolutely nothing because you couldn't make a sound out of it or come up with a name out of it it would only be related to that person by the right. fact that it's, you've it's associated so it to them right exactly a hundred years later no one would know what it means because it's not associated with a sound it's an entire name and these are uh you know these are abstract cursive symbols um so, I mean, they have to be logosyllabic, which means it's picture writing, and yet it's not a picture of anything. It's not a picture of a person. It's not a sound of a person. The only way to know that is to memorize it over centuries. How are you going to do that if it's not attached to anything else? I mean, literally now, if you are representing individual names by their own symbols, you have tens of thousands of characters in your writing system. And now it becomes impossible to use. So. And and yeah, you can see right here in your picture, the catfish and the chisel, they're pictures. Yes. You know yeah. what they are. I have no idea what those things are. I, I can't, I can't associate that to a picture other than the pirate hook. I can maybe make out a pirate <laughs> And <hook>. we created <laughs> our own ideology around it. We're like, this looks like a hook. It means this on a boat. He's got a peg leg. We invented this whole story around it, but it's not inherent in the symbol. The meaning is not there. So in Egyptian, can... yeah, in Egyptian, early on, they have hieratic, which is cursive hieroglyphs. And it is a, I mean, it's still picture writing, but it's, uh, it's very abstract. They take the picture and they turn it into a, a cursive glyph. Um, and this is where we get uh, a lot of our writing associated. Interestingly enough, though, it's always associated with a picture. Like in the uh, Egyptian papyri, you have a picture and then a text. And the text is written in cursive, but it's describing the picture. Right. This is what we get in Mayan writing, by the way. You get a text by a picture most of the time. And uh, and. And the text is describing what's going on in the picture. So it's very visually oriented. In any case, you don't get a single symbol proper noun. Um, it, it, <laughs> and is that He's why laughing when we talked in one of your previous ones, you talked about the names in Central America and they'd be like, 
you know, leopard that killed or something like that, right. because you can Hard draw leopards, so your name would be associated with. Yes, picture. Seven Flintstone Pumpkin Jaguar is the name of the king. I like and yes, that. Yes, it has graphical Seriously. elements uh, describing that. It's associated, a lot of the names are war names, but uh, some of them are associated with calendar dates. The day that they're born on is encoded in the name. Um, and so, but again, there's, yeah, they're, they're phonetically spelled out. I mean, the names have different graphical elements. There's not a fish hook king, Mayan king. Uh, so I, <laughs> when we look at all of this, when we look at the character's document, when we look at the other symbols, when we look at the proper nouns being represented by a single symbol, we are looking at just at a different worldview where whoever's making this up believes that these ancient symbols can have multiple layers of meaning. Remember that Egyptian grammar, one symbol not only was a proper noun, but it had multiple layers of meaning, right? It was the name of a person, but it also meant priesthood and priesthood keys and traditions descending down with the priesthood keys and the art of embalming and right. There are layers of meaning. We're, we're, we're actually going to cover that. Uh, we've got uh, Elder Igloo coming on in we a do. couple of weeks. Um, that's his uh, his handle. Yeah. Good. <laughs> he draws it with, his, with an igloo. It's, yeah. With an igloo, that's right. But this is his, we've heard this presentation before and we're bringing it to Mormonish. We had it in our book club and this is sort of his area of expertise and you're exactly right in what you're saying. It's absolutely fascinating. We're yeah, he talks about this layered system that Joseph mm -hmm. Smith mm -hmm. uses, uh, the five different layers that he, and and how he tried to make this language work with different layers. So that, that'll be an interesting one coming up. Well, um, yeah, I, again, so I, I, I'm, I will be interested in the comments to, to see what people say. But uh, what I'm looking at is not an alphabet. It's not an abjad. It's not a syllabary. It's not even a logo syllabary. It's a logo symbolic script where one symbol can represent pretty much as much as you want it to represent as long as you're the guy who can scry the meaning out of the seer stone, right? All truth may be circumscribed into one great whole, which is a temple theme, is an echo that all truth may be inscribed into a single symbol and that the Adamic language preserved in reformed Egyptian was a logo symbolic mythosyllabic or crypto cipher script. That's what we're looking at. It's not, it's not any of those writing systems. It's a crypto cipher script. It's a mythosyllabic script. It's a logo symbolic script. It's a magic, it's a magic system. Um, Again, you know, Joseph Smith has the ability to create the text of the Book of Mormon. And so he does it. But, you know, really quickly, people start asking, well, where are the plates? What's on the plate? Show me the characters. And he has to create this. And he spent all his time conceiving of how to create the text. So he's 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 making up these symbols. These symbols aren't real symbols. I... I and I mean, one of one of the keys is the single symbol names. That's uh, deeply problematic. Having said that, I may be wrong, 
because there is one symbol on the script that is ancient that modern mormonism has used as the truth circumscribed into one great whole i don't know <laughs> if you notice that symbol but it's everywhere in 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 the church right sorry i couldn't help myself for our <laughs> listeners john has just put a giant dollar sign up on the screen so. <laughs> this is the crypto cipher script the, there it the is. adamic language there it is. <laughs> never changed <laughs> it has never changed not in all the ages all right guys um so this is uh the end of my presentation and so far i've just looked at three things uh all of them all of them are just in my view death blows to the claims of the historicity of the book of mormon starting with just the epistemology of morality and literacy Rituals versus text, cosmogony versus history, myths versus sermons. None of this works in the anthropology and archaeology of pre-Columbia America or in the thought cultures and cosmovisions of pre-Columbia America. We should find thousands of texts written in Reformed Egyptian or alphabetic Hebrew. We don't find any, zero, none, zil. Um, you know, maybe a few dollar signs scattered throughout. Um, the gold plates, textual density, uh, ancient plates. Remember the number one archeological evidence was, uh, writing on metal plates. They're all ritual texts. They're not historical texts. They're all texts with one to six words per square inch. We're, we're, we've got to find Tumbaga rice paper plates with 20 to 40 words per square inch. Oh God! And remind me, John. Uh, did did we find any plates in the Americas, or were they all in the ancient world? There were uh, gold Mayan discs that were ritual plates one. that were torn apart, thrown into cenote for a ritual. Oh, that's some right. of them had a few yeah. Mayan glyphs on them. Yeah. Okay, but they also date. Uh, most of them date to about a thousand CE. They're well after the period of the Book of Mormon. Tumbaga is well after the period of the Book of Mormon. But, excuse me. Nephi makes gold plates at 600 BCE, 570 BCE, as soon as he lands in the Americas. You know, 30 years after they've left Jerusalem, he makes a set of gold plates, which Moroni says, oh, hey, I found Nephi's plates. I'm going to put them right on the stack of the plates I've just made, right? Are you telling me that Nephi's plates are Tumbaga rice paper plates? He was doing this at 600 BCE? Uh, and where was he doing it at? Remember, Tumbaga comes from Peru, and uh, metallurgy doesn't enter Mesoamerica until 800 CE AD, right? But I, I am told by the text itself, that there are actually a couple different series of plates in the stack. And uh, part of it is the small plates of Nephi, which are just added in, right? And so is did Nephi develop this technology of Tumbaga rice paper plates? And then everyone used it thereafter. And yet we can't find a single example of it through all the centuries and millennium thereafter. I'm sorry. It's an inspired process. It's, That's why I'm, it's an inspired process. This is madness. This is and, madness. And, and we keep hearing this, this, uh, that they are 
you know, an alloy. They're not gold because gold right. would be too heavy. So they're an alloy. However, uh, in ether, we're told the 24 plates are of pure gold. Yeah. Yes. Gold is not alloy. Nope. Yeah. But but he wasn't running around hiding them in logs and under uh, uh, kitchen tables. Uh, but sure enough, the 24 gold plates would, you know, be two, three hundred pounds. But these guys were large in stature. Right. They could carry them around with their giant scimitars <laughs> as they did their dance on the deck <laughs> of the pirate ship that Abraham captained. I mean, it all makes sense if you look at the ancient texts. <laughs> yeah. I'm being facetious, of course. Um, being snarky. Uh, unsealed plates must contain 335,000 words, textual densities between 84 and 262 words uh, per square inch. None of that works. The orality and literacy doesn't work. The, the, the description of the plates does not work, no matter how hard Mr. Grover tries. This, this does not exist in the ancient world. And, uh, and then tonight... Um, the writing systems itself, just that quote from Charles Anton tells us we're not dealing with an ancient writing system. We're dealing with an ancient magic system. It is a tableau of text and symbols, sun, moon, and stars, uh, written as a magic seal or cipher, like the Sigillum Day. Reformed Egyptian is conceived of as divine writing where one character literally can produce a thousand words, these characters are written as magical tableaus and one symbol names do not work. So uh, that is the summary of everything we've discussed and the entire thing, therefore, none of it works. None of it works. So in our next and last installment in this series, if if you have me back, I'm, I'm surprised we're still here at hour <laughs> 10. Um, oh, come on. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk. You know, I'm going to talk about uh, why we must have a tight translation uh, as opposed to a loose translation. And then ultimately, how Mormonism has pivoted uh, from one explanation of the plates and translation to another, to another. Uh, and uh, basically, they choose what works. And actually on uh rfm and bill reels podcast yesterday uh rfm made a really good point if you um take the obvious choice off the table that this is made up then what you are left with is a series of choices where you must pick the least insane. <laughs> and so this is this is where we're at. They're picking the least insane choice. Look, I can get three to 600 plates in the stack. I can write these characters uh, in smaller than one millimeter. I can create uh, this writing system using names from a single symbol. Um, you, you know, you, you just end up going from the least insane choice, <laughs> which is which is where we're at. Ultimately, ultimately, the um, the leaders of the church 
you know, they actually have a template that they argue from. And uh, I'm going to talk about that in the next uh, in the in the next one. Uh, but ultimately, they say you can only know the truth of the Book of Mormon through spiritual witnesses and revelation. Right. So all of this is interesting, but that's not, you know, that's not the truth of the Book of Mormon. You can only know it through spiritual witnesses and revelation. Please send us your check. Yes. So, however, you can know the falsity of it by the falsifiable information that you've just shown us. That's right. But that's not acceptable because when that doesn't fit the narrative you have to make work, then you have to defend the indefensible. And that's where we see I, people do I have, logical, smart people, yeah. um, brilliant people that you see them in this position where they, you know, I just had a visit with my parents and experienced some of that where you just have to shake your head because it's defending the indefensible, in my opinion. The narrative is falsifiable, and we've just falsified it. That's and it's not just me; it's lots of people have come and said, "Oh my gosh, look at this problem! Look at that problem!" The narrative is falsifiable. So then you have to create a narrative that is non-falsifiable, uh, which is their template. Here is the non-falsifiable narrative. You can never falsify it, and this is what will keep us in power. I just want to say, God never requires that from a disciple. God never requires you to invest your life in the unfalsifiable. If you don't believe in God, great. But if you do believe in God, he doesn't require any of that. He never says, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. <clears throat> but if he does, he doesn't say, doubt the truth instead of your faith. Right. The faith serves the truth. The truth doesn't serve the faith. And boy, they have got that backwards. So I, I, I'm just saying, um, even from a religious point of view, what they're doing is immoral. And from a scientific point of view, it's falsifiable. So either way, they've got problems and uh, people should call them out on it. And people do. All right. Well, that's my presentation tonight. Um, John, you never disappoint. And, and I agree with you. You can't falsify feelings. And that's why almost everything leads back to feelings. Landon and I do a series on the gospel topic essays with the backyard professor. And we read these essays where they're trying to lay out a way that people can wrap their brain around some of these issues and problems. And always in the last paragraph, it finally says, you can never really know. <laughs> you just have to, and this can never be proved, right, Landon? It always says you just have to pray and have faith. That's what it, you can't falsify feeling. They spent, they spend 12 paragraphs arguing their point, And then they say, but it but doesn't matter. It Th this really is really what matters. Clear. So yeah, I just, I just wrote that down. I'm, I'm, I'm making a book of quotes from John Lundwall. The faith serves the truth. The truth doesn't serve the faith. I love that. Yeah. That's um, we should put out a Wait, coffee can table. Can I monetize book that? Of John. Yeah. I'm say, yeah, I'm gonna say let's make a coffee table book of John sayings. We'll I've put got, it together. I know everything language. A fish hook right there. We all know what it means. Everyone knows what it means. You can't falsify it. Can't Abraham falsify. was a pirate. <laughs>
Abraham. Come on. <laughs> oh, we have too much fun. Well, once again, John, you do not disappoint. And this will be an episode that people will have to watch over and over. I love our viewers who say, I've watched this three times and I've taken notes because it's that good. I mean, you watch it once and you're like, okay, I get the concept. Then you go back. You're like, oh, now I see there's, there are layers, like you described layers of meaning um, in your, in your presentations. And we're just so honored that you're doing this on mormonish aren't we landon oh yeah we we love john uh not not we only for his intellect but just as a person we just as we enjoy an awesome person. Uh, doing things with john he's a great person yeah, we absolutely do. So as you heard it here, uh, John will be back for one more episode in this series. And then we have some other ideas to bring him back. But we will do one more episode to have him crystallize his final thoughts. And that'll come out in a couple of weeks, I think, after this. Um, I would tell people to comment, but I don't think I have to tell them to do it. Because as we've seen, people comment, people, you know, and, and we love that. We absolutely love the dialogue. We love the discussion. Everything should be able to be scrutinized. Everything should be looked at. Everything should be peer reviewed. So please, please comment and say everything you've ever wanted to say. And John jumps on all the time and addresses things. And and we've even talked about, you know, maybe having maybe having a dialogue on, on Mormonish, having, you know, maybe having inviting Jerry on. That would be really interesting because he's an awesome guy. And just talk about some of these things because we can all learn, I think, from this kind of scholarship and the peer review and going over it together. Don't you think, Landon? Absolutely. Yep. I think so too. I, I think so. that would be great. I think the comments yep. are great. I don't yep. it, bring the criticisms as well. I, I, yep. again, I, if you have something to share that I can learn, I'm interested in that. I would be happy to talk with Jerry or anyone else. So I, I, yep. what interests me is truth. I, I don't care if I'm right or wrong to prove that I'm wrong. I'm okay with that because then I walk away thinking, Hey, I've improved my thought world. Uh, so I, I, all that interests me is truth. I want the truth. So um, I, I welcome the comments as well in any conversation. Yep. I agree. That's how we are on Mormonish, transparent, and we love to hear from all of you. So please like and subscribe. And if you'd like to find out when a new episode is coming out, you can hit that notification bell. Um, also, if you're interested in helping Mormonish out financially, financially supporting the channel, we do have links to Venmo and PayPal and all of our show notes. And we'll say goodbye for now. But again, there's going to be one more episode in this series from John and then probably some other things, you know, that you might not expect coming forward. So we're excited. Thank you, everybody from Mormonish. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.